This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. She's enjoying an extra day on her long weekend. I hope you had a nice long weekend. And based on the weather forecast for the next few days, we are all going to be enjoying uh, summer for the first week of August. Well, as we await Justin Trudeau's visit to the Governor General in anticipation of a federal election, a new Leger poll suggests the Liberals are in the lead with voter support, but not way out ahead. Here's the breakdown if you missed details on our news earlier. If an election were held today, 29% of those surveyed say they would vote Liberal, 24% would vote Conservative, 16% and DP 4% green. But of decided voters, 36% would cast ballots for the Liberals, 29% for the Conservatives, 20% for the NDP. Where is your vote going to go? Have you decided? Are you among the decided voters or are you still undecided? But if forced to vote today, which way would you vote? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. As for the leaders themselves, 27% of respondents say Justin Trudeau is the best prime minister. 19% are in favor of Jagmeet meet Singh, just 11% say Aaron O'Toole would make the best prime minister. Our strategy panelists are here to offer their thoughts on the political news of the day, starting with this survey. John Capobianco is senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is CEO of Variety Village and Charles Souza, former liberal Ontario finance minister. Welcome all. Hello, Jane. Hi, Jane. Hey. Thank you, Jane. So what jumps out at you most in this latest survey of Canadian voters? Charles, I'll start, I will start with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, thanks for being on the show. I, I you know, it's been uh, discussed for some time. Trudeau is suggesting this is the time to go, obviously, because he's not. he says he's not getting as much cooperation to get things through the House, but obviously it's because the pollings are strong. He's got to time this thing, at a, you know, before... Uh, a fourth wave were to occur, for example, what may happen come the fall, kids back to school and other things. Uh, so I can appreciate him wanting to go back. The polls got, have him winning a majority. And, uh, yeah, so he's putting out a lot of goodies out there. He's trying to establish a ballot question. He's trying to differentiate himself, you know, with the carbon tax and social programs that he's promising. He's got to also figure out how to make the economy work. And uh, the GG looks like she's going to support uh, the the issue, obviously, because you know presidents would suggest she wouldn't. And uh, Jagmeet Singh may argue a fixed election should be the one, but you know they're they're saying that uh, the confidence, uh, although he says it exists, uh, Trudeau will say it doesn't and doesn't preclude, regardless uh, of Trudeau calling the early election. But. Jane, I, I don't know. I, 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 there's a lot of people I hear don't want the election regardless, but uh, I, I get why the Liberals are going to try to do it. You know, the irony of the of all of this, though, Charles, is that, uh, in effect, the Parliament has been working very well. I mean, it, it, with the new Democrats holding the Liberals to task, ensuring that the CERB was double what they were originally proposing, being cooperative on what Canadians need during the pandemic, uh, really, it, it's gone pretty well. And that is Jagmeet's argument, right? And that's what he wrote to the, uh, the Governor General about, but... Uh, at the same time, uh, the Liberals will say, yeah, but it's been challenging. There's more things that could be done. We could do them quicker. We need confidence of the people in order to enable us to be so. And uh, and the pollings are what they are. So um, this is politics. And he's going to try to take advantage of the upswing. Karen, what do you make of the survey? Well, I, I think that uh, it is interesting in that the, the Liberals have been governing as if they have a majority really. And, um, and they haven't had a majority. So, 
you know, on the one hand, I think it's it's not a terrible idea to go to the polls to either solidify that they have a majority, or if they don't get a majority, then they they actually do need to be more. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, reaching out a little bit more to the other parties for some consensus building. There was a moment in time during the pandemic where the government just had to make decisions, and I think that Parliament gave a lot of leeway for that to happen. Credit to the Parliament is due there. Uh, there's some other things that I think that the Liberals may have overstretched and may have, uh, you know, taken some liberties that weren't theirs to take, and I think that the opposition was right to push back a little bit on that. So I, I don't think it's terrible to have an election right now. I think there's some things that could certainly work against the Liberals, like if there is a fourth wave before the election results are in, I think that that could work against the Liberals. But I, I do think that, that one interesting statistic that sticks out for me is that the Conservative Party is more popular than the leader. Mm. And so that demonstrates to me that, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, Aaron O'Toole needs to figure that out because there, there's something holding him back um, as a leader of the party. And, um, and you know, and conversely, the, the Liberal Party is slightly more popular than Justin Trudeau. So I, I think that there is, um, you know, there's some things that are going on there that uh, need to be better understood. And we'll talk about the individual leaders in just a moment. Uh, John, your overall reaction to this survey and where voters' minds are at right now? Well, I think there's, there seems to be a bit of a, uh, a bit of trepidation with, with Canadians in some ways. And it sort of ebbs and flows over the course of the last little while, as we've seen with the varying polls. And there's two truths when it comes to politics, and that is one is polls are a snapshot in time. So obviously, you know, depending on when the poll was done and what questions were asked, you get a certain result. It does not necessarily reflect what will happen during the campaign or more importantly, during the election. And then the other one is that campaigns matter. So, you know, what what people are thinking today uh, could very well change depending on what happens in the campaign. We saw in the last campaign, when when Pierre Trudeau, or forgive me, when Justin Trudeau was uh, was in for re-election, and you know, and, and he got caught with uh, with a couple of issues with respect to blackface mm-hmm. and, and what happened in the past, and and that hurt him, it prevented him from getting a a, a, a majority government, and, and likely and same with with Andrew Scheer, who was could have could have won, but but had a bit of a, a bit of a bad campaign that tried to cost him. That so campaigns do matter, and, and polls are a snapshot in time. And what I would say is that. Um, you know, the Liberals, because they are going to be forcing the election, it's, it's, if it was in the middle of the parliament and both the NDP and, and, uh, and the Conservatives, along with the Green, all voted against a certain confident motion and that the opposition forced an election, well, that's different because mm-hmm. then the government could say, well, look, they forced it. I'm, 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 we're in it. We, you know, we have to cause this. But the fact of the matter is the Liberals will have to go to the governor general and actually cause the election. And that's going to be a problem because Canadians are thinking, do we really need an election? Like, what, what is, you know, Charles talked about a ballot question. The fact that the Liberals have to find or try to try to get a ballot question uh, created it speaks volumes of the fact that they sh- there shouldn't be an election, that they're purely going because they think that there's a window of opportunity, given the polls, that they could win a majority government, which obviously would, would be the, their favorable way of governing versus a, uh, versus a minority government. But what I would say, too, though, Jane, is the fact that the NDP don't want an election and have gone so far as to send a letter to the governor general suggesting that she not, you know, accept the, the, the writ that, that the government wants to have. It gives me an indication that the government could continue to govern. The NDP will p- p- continue to support every legislation that this government has well beyond, you know, 2022, which means that, you know, we'll have a better understanding of what, where this pandemic is, because, of course, now we're talking about this fourth, fourth wave or this variant. And that's going to be a problem. Wouldn't you say, though, John, um, you're questioning uh, the ballot question. To me, it seems it, it is uh, that the Liberals feel that they have handled the pandemic, uh, protecting Canadians, getting the vaccine ultimately to a huge proportion of Canadians. That, to me, seems to be the ballot question. How well did the Liberals handle the pandemic? Well, yeah, and that's what they're going to go on. They're going to go on and say, look, we've, we've been able to get, you know, 60, 70% or 80% of Canadians vaccinated, uh, a fully 60 to 70% fully vaccinated. So that's going to be something that they're going to be able to force. But why would you go to an election based on that? Why wouldn't you want to continue the good news on the pandemic? Why wouldn't you want to continue all this and, and carry it on as opposed to have an election that could very well cause some problems and some anxiety amongst Canadians? 
We're here on Fight Back with our strategy panelists, John Capobianco, Karen Stins, Charles Souza, Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio. Numbers to call if you'd like to get in on the conversation about the pending election, the very probable election, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let me put this uh, to the three of you. Based on the very poor polling for Aaron O'Toole, just 11% of respondents to this Leger survey say he would make the best prime minister. Uh, So as you were pointing out, Karen, um, Aaron O'Toole ranks far lower than his actual party. It could be argued that Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh are the right people for their parties. What is the strategy here for the Conservatives, given that huge discrepancy between O'Toole's popularity and the party's popularity? Charles, well, I mean, their their resolve initially, when it was a reform party and a progressive conservative party, was to amalgamate and try to find unity to win an election. And that worked for Stephen Harper. But it's not working for the progressive conservatives within that party. People like Peter McKay and now Aaron O'Toole, who's tacking a little bit more to the center, trying to, you know, tell the party we got to consider the environment and, and carbon pricing and look at some of the social programs that are evident. And the social conservatives within that party are balking back. And it's been a repeat. They've done this before. They did it with Patrick Brown here provincially. And uh, to their, in the end, Ford won and he got the benefit of, of, of that issue. But federally, it, it's, it's a challenge. And, and if the left were to unite, well, there would be no contest. But the, the fact of the matter is, Aaron O'Toole doesn't seem like a bad guy. In fact, he seems a bit more progressive than most. And I, I, and I, I just think, uh, you know, the, the blue tent is wobbling and they're angry and they're imploding yet again. And that's really unfortunate for them at a time when they should stay united. Karen, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I know Aaron, not well, but, I, you know, in our, our, paths, our political paths have crossed over the years. And he is a very solid individual that is committed to the conservative principles that I think would make a fantastic prime minister, should he get that opportunity. I think the challenges he faces is that not many people know him. And that combined with the fact that the party seems hell-bent on destroying itself creates a problem for any individual, you know, not more so for one that doesn't maybe have the charismatic presence to put down those um, branches in the party that are trying to create turmoil. Because, you know, if Aaron O'Toole was extremely personally popular, he would then have more sway over the party. Mm-hmm. Because he's coming out of the gate trying to build his reputation with Canadians at the same time as trying to lead the party, he's, he's, he's having some challenges. And it, it's unfortunate to watch because it, he is a, you know, he, I think he, he has, he is trying to capture the middle conservative sentiment around how the country should move forward. But all of that is getting drowned out by, by some of the more extreme parts of the party, you know, and I say, and the fact that he's just not that well known. On that topic, John, is the Conservative Party morphing back into more of a reform party uh, and less uh, a conservative party, and, and Aaron O'Toole just no longer fits? No, I don't think so. I, in fact, I know the, that the party has got, you know, like every party has got factions. Uh, the reform element of the party exists, but, it, but it's also under control. Um, Aaron O'Toole is a phenomenal leader. You're, you won't be surprised to know that I quite like him and, and I would support him. But, uh, but he's got some challenges with respect to the pandemic. And, and like, much like Stephen Del Duca provincially, right? Any opposition leader during a pandemic is not going to get the press or the coverage that they want because, of course, the focus is going to be on the leader or the premier or the prime minister. And I think that's been a challenge for him. But I think once Canadians get a sense of him, once they see him in the election campaign, they'll like him because he is a, uh, a middle class, uh, sub, you know, suburban GTA a family man who just wants to do right. His father was a, was an MPP. They have, they have, he has really good political pedigree, but it's somebody who I think is going to do well. But once Canadians get a better sense of him and who, who he is, I think he'll do very well. And that's why I think the numbers fluctuate in the polls. Panelists, we do have some Zoomer radio listeners who would like to get in on this conversation. Let's go to Edward in Toronto. Your thoughts on the coming election? 
Hi there. Um, yeah, in terms of the election itself, I mean, I think, you know, if one has an opportunity to secure a majority, that's one thing. But in light of the numbers uh, with respect to the, the support of party politics versus the actual, um, I suppose, leaders, this discrepancy is something I've actually had to grapple with for many, many years as a voter. Um, I personally, you know, sometimes when I don't see that confidence in the leadership, I uh, unfortunately, I scratch and spoil my ballot. You know, I don't feel like I'm able to swing either way. Ultimately, the question here is, are we really moving in a direction where possibly party politics might be holding back from us making those decisions to bring the leadership we need in the country versus the actual, like, party and the solidarity around specific policies? So are we moving towards a direction where really the parties themselves may, you know, have to choose differently? We may have to choose leaders based on, you know, their, whether they're a fit for Canada versus a fit for the party. Right. Does that make sense? No, excellent observation and question. Thank you for calling in, Edward. Um, I'll get our panelists to comment on uh, those thoughts. Charles? Yeah, Edward, I, you know, he... This notion of partisanship, like, like, for example, you've got three of us on this panel. John Capabianco is a good conservative. I've been a, you know, a liberal. Karen's been around politics, and she knows her stuff. And all of us seem to have a sense that it's beyond partisan. Like, we want to do the right thing. So sometimes a leader, uh, you know, a very popular leader, very charismatic leader, wins the day, and, and all the other candidates ride on those coattails. And the majority of the times that people vote, they do vote for the leader. They do vote for that person who's in charge, and that sways much of the election. The candidates within those respective ridings may sway 10% at most. Most often, it's about 5%. So, Edward, your point is well taken. We need better back uh, benchers. We need a good uh, strength on, on the team to, to support whoever that leader may be. And I would prefer not to be so at, at times. I mean, I got caught in a situation where... Uh, we had a very unpopular leader at the tail end of uh, of our election, and, and people lose trust. And once you have mm-hmm. that, you lose the election. And that's unfortunate because you end up riding, you end up voting against the party as opposed to voting for the party in some elections. And and this one, while Trudeau is at the top of, uh, uh, of the polling, he isn't really at the top of the party, as I, as I see it. So there is that challenge. And Edward, that's just life in politics. And Karen, uh, on that same note, you will hear people say, I'm voting for the candidate in my riding because I believe mm-hmm. they're going to do a lot for my particular riding. So there is still that mindset out there. There is, but to a lesser degree, and which is why, you know, I think Jody realized, Jody Rabel Wilson realized running as an independent is not actually a very fulfilling role in Parliament mm-hmm. because you don't have any structure to support your constituents. And so you could be the greatest um, parliamentarian in the parliament, but if you don't have any way of getting things done, your effectiveness in your community diminishes. And that's just the reality of party-based politics. But what I do think is, you know, it, it, it you know, causes me to giggle a little bit, to be honest, is that Justin Trudeau ran on a platform of uh, reform, election reform. And then after studying it, realized that uh, the current system is the most beneficial for his party <laughs> and his long-term ability to stay as leader. So that decided to scrap the election reform entirely. Yeah, and excellent so, point. A lot of people, especially younger voters, were really yeah. counting on that election reform. Yeah. 100%. But, you know, it, it's our system and it's entrenched in our system. The, the, the majority government, the, you know, the, ro- the loyal opposition, and it's not perfect at all. And uh, but you know what I think on balance it the government that we elect reflects the sentiments of the nation. So although it it doesn't always work in individual ridings, I think on balance it works for the country. John, would you like to comment on Edward's comment there about uh, finding the right leader to represent the country as opposed to the party? Yeah, no, he makes a very interesting point, and I would say that Karen, amongst the three of us uh, on the panel. Had the most unique uh, position as uh, being a municipal councillor because people voted for her. 
as opposed to a party. There was no party affiliation, and of course, in the city of Toronto. So people went to, when Karen went to the door, it's either you like her or you don't, which is why she's been so successful as a municipal politician. Whereas Charles and I in party politics, and, and Charles being, of course, a successful politician, um, you know, people voted for the leader or the party. When I ran as a federal candidate back in the day, I got at the door, either they liked my leader or they liked my party or they didn't like either one. And then Charles was right. The candidate, the, the local candidate is about 10 points, you know, makes about a 10 point difference. And if you can get that as a candidate, that can make a difference between winning or losing. But yeah, obviously, there's no question that, that people, the Canadians vote for the leader and or party, first and foremost. It's the strategy panel here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby. Jeff in Port Perry, you have a comment about our conversation. Jeff, go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. I, uh, I have a comment about um, why I think the Conservatives aren't doing too well. Um, one of the things is that Aaron doesn't seem to be saying very much. I know that in the House he speaks out, but in the media we hear very little from him. So the public doesn't really know what he's about or even what the Conservatives are about. What we do get is a bit of media coverage that tells us that there's some infighting. Uh, Trudeau has the, the, the ear of the media in the sense that he's on the air virtually every day speaking about COVID, so we hear him. Uh, unfortunately, we don't hear much from Aaron. The media doesn't give him much attention. And I think those are some serious problems. Um, the public itself, to me, is really uninformed. Um, most people that I talked, I'm a senior, so most people that I talk to seem to use social media as their only and absolute source of information, and they're quite happy to take one sentence and form an opinion, whereas if you read some of the editorial pieces or some of the background pieces and challenge them a little bit, I think people would have a better understanding of what all the parties are about, um, you know, who's really working for us and who's working for themselves. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. I, I do want to ask the panelists, based on uh, the point that you've just made, how important is it now, Charles, for Aaron O'Toole to get out in front and for him to deliver the, the message of what the Conservatives would do as a government? Yeah, it's critical. I mean, uh, Jeff is absolutely right. You don't see much of Aaron O'Toole because he doesn't have the attention of the media and he doesn't have the limelight that Trudeau has. Um, he's the incumbent, and he's all. And it's funny because Trudeau has actually had to off over. How should I put this? He, he's had a lot more controversy than most leaders within the parties, and yet he seems to, you know, the water's just coming off his back. He's, you know, he's doing okay, but there is misinformation. And Jeff makes a good point that certain leaders don't get the opportunity to tell their story, and what we're getting is. You know, we're getting a story uh, about the People's Party instead, about being anti-vaxxers. And that kind of, even though they're not part of the Conservative Party, they're seen as conservatives. And it, it, it works against uh, Aaron O'Toole, unfortunately. But you're right, uh, Jeff. I'd rather people don't just keep looking at social media and look at the misinformation. There's so much QAnon con- and conspiracy theories and nonsense out there. Uh, people need to be better informed. And, you know, Aaron O'Toole has a fight ahead of him, and the moment he, people get to know him and see him and he's out in front, people will see he's okay. So I, I'm, I'm voting liberal, obviously, but I'm just <laughs> concerned that too much information I exists, and, and, and I just I get angry by it. Well, Karen, when, I mean, is it is it too late to get Aaron O'Toole out there with his message uh, to be more forthcoming from the party's perspective? Is Are they strategically waiting because uh, the support for the party is so much more than for him? Yeah, I, I don't think it's too late at all. Uh, as John said, elections do matter. And, you know, anecdotally, and again, not based on any scientific fact at all, um, my experience has been that people have been tuning out of the media a little bit because it has been so focused on, on COVID. And now things are opening up. People are able to get together, going to the Jays games, maybe going out to certain places. And their attentions are somewhere else. And they're, they, they're just, there's just not the same appetite to hear the news, particularly if it's not good news. And so whereas Trudeau gets the opportunity to go out and announce um, billions in spending for various sectors, obviously Aaron O'Toole doesn't have that same opportunity. But I think there will come a time when the election 
is actually underway, that he will have more airtime and more opportunity to make his case to Canadians why um, he would be in a good position to be their prime minister. But I don't think it's too late at all. Um, I think that, you know, everyone's kind of waiting to see if this election actually will happen. And I think it's not terrible. It, 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 it's strategic for the Conservatives to hold their powder a bit um, until they know what, what they're actually fighting for. Okay. So, John, uh, on that note then, what issues should Aaron O'Toole highlight when the party finally decides to bring him out? Well, I think he's got to focus on the future. Like, it's one thing to be able to say, look, there are certain things that happened during the pandemic that didn't work, that the prime minister... But I think if you dwell on that, if you dwell on the negatives, people are going to get are going to tune out. But you have to yes. focus on what are we going to do post-pandemic? How is this rec- economy going to be recovered? What are the Liberals going to do about it? And have they done something now that gives you confidence that they've got the management of the economy that's going to get us out of this pandemic? And I think Aaron O'Toole has to make that because Conservatives tend to have a lot more faith with Canadians when it comes to the economy than the Liberals do. And we've got to play that up. I think you're right. And I think Canadian voters respond very well to a proactive message as opposed to negative advertising about other parties. I think, you know, we want to know what are you going to do, right? That seems to be kind of a Canadian mentality. Okay, final question to my strategy panelists. Um, You know, we, we don't need to have a friendly wager or anything, but date, the date you think the prime minister will go to the governor general and the date for the election. Is it too soon to ask that, Charles? Uh, well, everyone's speculating anytime between August 8th to the 19th, I think it was, um, that he'll actually go to the governor general um, or the 15th. Uh, with the election happening in September, 13th or the 20th, I think uh, that'll be the that'll will be the case. It'll be a short writ, 36 days. I don't see uh, Trudeau wanting it to be much longer. Um, there's going to be some negative ads, uh, I, I'll, although nobody likes them. But Pierre Pelletier and and his cuteness on on social media, those are the kind of attack ads that they'll go after Trudeau. But uh, it won't be enough. So, so I'm just you think it's going to be after Thanksgiving as opposed to before that the family gatherings and the discussions will will help <laughs> rather than hinder. Uh, I think it's going to be before October. I think it'll be in early in, in mid September. Oh, September I thought 20th. you said October 13th or October 20th. No, September 13th, September uh, 20th. Gotcha. Right. I think it's going to be quick. I, I don't think he wants to go for a possible fourth wave and he has to take advantage of what he has now. That's funny. I thought it might be, I'm thinking it might be the Monday or Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Karen, what about you? Yeah, I I agree with Charles. I think it's going to be sooner than later because I think that he wants this election over as quickly as possible, given that there's still the concern about the variant. Uh, Get everybody to the polls now and then make a decision. That's what I, I, I think. John, what are you hearing? Yeah, no, I'm in agreement. I think that Elections Canada would prefer to have a longer uh, election period because they want to make sure that everything works out and comes out nice. But I think politically speaking, the Liberals won't want to have a very short, the shortest as they possibly can, get in, get out, uh, and hope for a majority government. So I think it's going to be a mid-August call for late September uh, election uh, day. All right, very good. Uh, Thank you so much, our Tuesday strategy panelists. Thanks, Jane. See you guys. Thanks so much, Jane. John Capobianco is Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz is the CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Souza is the former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. I'm Jane for Libby. She's back tomorrow. And still to come, I want to hear from you if you've been working from home during the pandemic. Are you ready to physically return to work? Have you been given a date to return? by your employer? Or will you keep working at home? Maybe your company is embracing a hybrid of in-person and at-home working. It's going to be a very interesting discussion fueled by you, our Zoomer radio listener, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. A panel of experts talks about the legalities and headspace of returning to in-person work next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. 
As the economy continues to reopen here in Ontario and COVID-19 related restrictions ease, are you ready to physically return to the workplace if you've been working at home during the pandemic? Or would you rather continue being at home for health and safety reasons or perhaps reasons of convenience? 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And what about the legalities of returning to in-person work? Joining us for this relevant discussion at this point in the pandemic, and especially for Zoomer workers, Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough, and Puneet Tiwari, Toronto employment and labor lawyer with Levitt, Sheikh, Chowdhury, and Swan Law. Hello to you both. Hello, Libby. Hi, Jane. Well, let's talk about the headspace people are in right now, anticipating some form of physically returning to work. Dr. Jordans, how stressful is this time? Well, you know, it's, I, I think for a lot of people, I've, I've talked about this before, the reemergence, I think, will initially be a little stressful, but that, that stress will dissipate pretty, pretty quickly. Um, we're, we're really creatures of habit, and it won't take us long if we go back to our old routine for it just to feel like a warm, fuzzy blanket. So on, on the anxiety level, I think, yeah, initially a little bit, but, you know, that that would go away pretty quick. But I think a lot of people have, have sort of found other benefits towards um, staying and working at home, and that's what they're going to miss, I think. It's interesting that this has been such a positive side effect of the pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, for for many it has, although, you know, I worry a little bit. We we live in a world where social anxiety is very strong, and it always was. You know, none of us love those networking events where we have to go and meet people we don't know and interact. Um, It's always a, a stressful kind of thing for humans to do. But this generation has grown up with social media, which has allowed them to have very shallow seeming social interactions. So they feel like they're interacting with a lot of people, but they're never interacting very deeply. You know, I've noticed even coming to office hours, students find it really intimidating to sit face-to-face across from a human being and have a real-time conversation uh, at some sort. And so this is a world that's already a little social anxious, and I'm I'm worried that this has allowed a lot of people to say, ah, this is the way I want to live, you know, not having to interact with a bunch of other strangers. But, but there's dangers in losing that. How would you say that that mindset, uh, you mentioned about social media, and certainly we're all on social media regardless of our age, but it, is that more the psychographic of the young worker as opposed to the Zoomer worker? Well, you know, the worry is more for the young worker because the Zoomer worker, you know, for a lot of us, we, we've sort of I don't know, our career has sort of run its course and we're kind of winding things down. And if we can do things, you know, sitting in our, li- our bedroom or our office at home, that's perfectly fine. The, the worry I have is the younger people for whom um, those social interactions that they have in the boardroom, those connections over lunch, those lunches they have with other people um, when they're taking breaks, those are the things that make future opportunities. You know, it is, it is partly who you know, and you get to know who you know through these social interactions that are all part of the normal workspace. So I worry that if younger people start working at home and loving that, they will sort of be the forgotten members of, of, the, of the team. And, you know, should a team have to downsize or if, if they're looking at potential, you know, oh, we need somebody for this new position, that person isn't going to come to mind the way they would if they were physically present and interacting with others. That's very interesting. Uh, and we will get more into uh, the dynamic about physically returning to work or working in a hybrid situation, even how workplaces should be redesigned in light of all that we have experienced during the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Jordan's also the best way for employers to approach this with their workers. If they do start or they want to have a staggered approach to work or a hybrid approach to physical work, how much notice do people need? I was at a family party on the weekend and uh, one of my family members was saying, you know, I'm I'm stressed because I just found out that I have to go back in two weeks. And that you know, they, this individual would have preferred more notice. Yeah, wow. I, I think that's probably a you just can't win um, kind of thing. They, they have the right um, workplaces to ask you to come back and, and be there in person. Um, I, I think to the extent people feel stress, you know, a lot of us are, are double vaccinated. So assuming you're double vaccinated, 
I don't think the stress is really well placed, and and I think you'll find that you know any worry you have is biggest just until you do it the first time or two, and and then once you do do it that first time or two, it'll it'll be nothing, and so I, I really think. You know, yeah, it would be nice to give people some notice, but then then they're just going to worry up until that point. I don't know. I would think two weeks would be more than more than fair to let somebody know. How is I'm putting this question to you, the Zoomer radio listener? Uh, what is your experience? If you have been working at home, have you heard yet uh, whether you are expected at least part of the time to return to an office? Uh, has it been very quiet? Are you hearing rumblings, uh, you know, through the grapevine as opposed to an official word? And how does that make you feel uh, about physically going back to work after 17 months of being at home? How will that change your life, uh, returning to that pre-pandemic state of affairs. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'm with Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough and Toronto employment and labor lawyer, Puneet Tiwari. Let's talk a little bit about the legalities, Puneet. Em- employers, do they have the legal right to say, okay, um, you need now need to return to the office, or or we want you to stay home? I mean, even for that matter. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a very simple answer, and it's yes. And Dr. Jordan, uh, you know, touched that on that a little bit, but absolutely, when when we all signed our employment contract pre-pandemic, um, you know, unless working from home was already part of that contract. You had agreed to go into the office as required and, uh, you know, let's say a standard nine to five. Um, now, just because the pandemic has happened, now that it's ending, that doesn't give you a permanent right to stay at home. If your employer would like you uh, to return to the office, you have to return to the office. And it goes the same way uh, in reverse. That, yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you're already working from home and working from home was a... Uh, you know, permanent part of your contract, then you can continue working from home. Or um, some employers, as we've heard, have made announcements that they'll permanently uh, give their employees the option or they're permanently going to eliminate their physical offices and everyone can, can you know, can travel or work from home or wherever they want. Um, they can't take away that right if they've already given it to you. Now, one thing that has popped up in, a, in the employment law field is that uh, now that employees are demanding to either have that full flexibility or stay at home permanently, uh, it gives employers the opportunity to perhaps renegotiate an employment contract, making uh, giving them that right, but in exchange, uh, they would like something back. And that could be either a reduction uh, in salary, which is probably rare, but perhaps more sturdy clauses in terms of termination or, or whatnot. And what are the conditions um, that have to be in place at this point in the pandemic for employees to physically return to the office? Oh, I'm, I'm imagining a lot of plexiglass like we have here at the Zoomerplex, um, all kinds of cleaning going on at all hours of the day, etc. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, just because people are allowed to return to work, it doesn't free employers from, you know, maintaining a safe environment. And they have to uh, continue to maintain a safe workplace for all of their employees. And that includes cleanings, plexiglass where required, social distancing, uh, wearing of masks in common areas. Um, I was uh, anecdotally, I've heard people are looking forward to, you know, hanging out by the coffee machine and, and joint lunches. Those are likely not coming back for the foreseeable future. Um, uh, I can tell you that I'm right right now back at the office. Uh, we don't have a communal coffee machine anymore. The lunch tables are set at the side where no one can sit on them. You eat at your desk or in your office, and it's not the same as it was before. And I think that's something people need to understand as well, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, what you do at the office is also going to be different. Puneet, what about um, the employers that are finding, oh, you know, this is quite lucrative to have my employees working at home. I no longer have to rent a space, potentially. Do you think that that is going to become more common, and and how well would that be embraced? I, I definitely think it's going to become more common 
especially with uh, millennials and the younger uh, members of the workforce. Uh, again, this is anecdotal, but I've heard a lot of employers are having trouble attracting talent as an initial demand seems to be, I want to be able to work from home or wherever I want. And, uh, you know, with uh, over the last 17 months, many industries have sort of, uh, you know, adapted and changed. And, for example, in the legal industry, there's now trials running over Zoom, which we didn't have before. Um, but that doesn't mean all employers are going to be okay with that. But, they, but tech companies especially, I think, are. They, they realize they don't really need the space. There's so many collaborative tools uh, where companies can... Uh, you know, still meet every day over Zoom, over over different chat platforms that they have, and they don't need to be in a physical office. You know, my 27-year-old son, uh, he's had enough of the Zoom meetings. He can't, <laughs> he, he doesn't mind the commuting to get to work. He's just looking forward to, to being with the people again. And those conversations that you have naturally with people in the same room and that camaraderie. That, that's exactly right. And that's something I... I definitely miss when I was working from home, and I appreciate now. And um, let's say I, I need to ask a colleague a question. I can just, you know, walk four steps and uh, knock on a door and, and, and just pop my head in to get my answer. Whereas before, it would be an email or a chat and kind of, you know, scheduling something. And that, that camaraderie and that social interaction just weren't there. Oh, and we ha- we have it here too in our newsroom. Like uh, the group of us that have been here at the Zoomerplex, I mean, they we are like family. We have literally been together in in a bubble uh, for seventeen mm-hmm. months, and and we really rely on each other. I think for you know we don't say it out loud like you guys are good for my mental health, but we we enjoy each other's company and the laughs and you know that naturally come from people being in the same room. There is, yeah, if, if I may absolutely. jump in. On yes, that Dr. Really Jordan's, quickly. go ahead. There, there's a bit of a worry with that uh, to some extent because sometimes, you know, when we imagine the old meetings where we would file into the meeting and for the first five or ten minutes, people would just be chatting about the weekend or this or that or, you know, sports that they saw, et cetera, et cetera. Those moments that seem inconsequential, you know, before we sat down and got to work, that's where the human connections are made. That's where we really see each other as, as human beings and we feel a certain then loyalty. You use the word family. You know, we get that sort of, I don't know, glue with the people we're working with. We feel like a bit of a team. And there is a bit of a worry that, I don't know, my experience at least has been that in this pandemic world, sure, I'm very productive, uh, but it's really getting down to business. It's like a Zoom thing opens and it's like, okay, why are we here? And you shut that down and you go right into another one. And so my, my worry is a lot of these workplaces, if they have too many people working online, if they don't bring them in on a semi-regular basis at least, that they may find that something's lost, that there's a little, that the work is getting done, but that the feeling isn't quite the same. Uh, there isn't the loyalty, and so people might be more willing to, you know, leave a company and go to another uh, opportunity much more quickly. So there is uh, there are worries like that that I think that uh, people have to consider as well. We need to take a quick break, but I want to talk more about the pros and cons of working at home and working physically in an office when we come back. And your phone calls are also welcome. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. We're talking about the return to in-person work, uh, which is reality for a lot of people who have been working from home for the last 17 months during the pandemic. And on our panel of experts, Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough, and Puneet Tiwari, Toronto employment and labor lawyer with Levitt, Sheikh, Chowdhury, and Swan Law. Puneet, let me uh, put this to you. Um, when should an employee, an employer, tell the workers that they are expected to come back in some form? Is there an amount of time that you have to give uh, uh, for notice? Well, I, I mean, really, no. As soon as they're in the clear, um, in terms of public health and the government, the employer can say, okay, it's time to come back. 
but my recommendation is as much time as possible. I know, um, you know, certain employers early in the summer, they said, hey, we're, we're heading back to work in the fall, uh, perhaps September 2nd or, or whatever, right after Labor Day seems to be a popular date with a lot of employers. Um, but uh, for morale, I think the best thing is to give as much notice as possible so people can deal with it as they, uh, as they might have to and, and enjoy the rest of their summer any way they can uh, before they head back. But there's no strict rule on, on you know, how much notice we have to give. How likely are we to see more hybrid situations of working from home two or three days during the week and then physically working at the office two or three days a week going forward? I think for a lot of industries, that is going to be the norm. Um, I had a debate the other day with some colleagues where some wanted to, you know, work from home permanently, whereas some wanted to come into the office as much as they could. One thing we could all agree on, however, was the best solution is likely a hybrid model. And I think a lot of employers will be implementing one so people can, you know, work from home a few days a week if they feel like it or come in whenever they'd like to come in. And I know a lot of companies are taking that approach um, because it's really going to be hard to retain talent if you if you are too rigid um, in terms of work from home. And, and if you're an employee and you have not yet heard from your company about a physical return to work, is it appropriate to ask? Who should you ask? Your immediate manager, human resources? What, how should you go about learning that information? Uh, you should absolutely ask your immediate manager. But the larger the company, the less likely your manager knows, to be honest. Mm. Uh, these decisions are likely made at a higher level. And to be honest, a lot of employers probably, even at this time, are not sure what they want to do. They're having those discussions, but they haven't really made a decision yet. And if you haven't heard anything, it's likely your company is not sure of how they're going to approach it. But ask your manager, and hopefully your manager knows. If not, they are likely asking their manager or HR. Dr. Jordans, you made the point uh, before the break about uh, the productivity level of workers during the pandemic, that it might be very high, but that morale might not be as high because people are, in effect, isolated from their co-workers. Right. How big of an issue is isolation? Has it played during the pandemic? Well, I mean, the, the thing that's made this pandemic so horrible right from the get-go is that our go-to strategy when we're under any sort of threat at all is to reach out and often literally embrace the people we love the most. So this insidious, you know, hey, this is a major threat to you and, oh, you cannot get close to the people you love has been a real challenge for our, for us because that is what we what we do. So, you know, I think we've all learned the value of our close social connections, but I don't know if we've necessarily kind of have, have seen the big picture like, for, let me give you one taste. Uh, a lot of people say they felt kind of adrift or, or detached or kind of odd during this whole period. And as one example of how that can come about, normally when you go about your day and you have these little interactions with individuals and, and think pre-pandemic, you know, how many individuals might you have had a little chat with during your day? Every chat you have, um, that individual is sort of reflecting their opinion of you back to you. You know, are you trustworthy? Are you friendly? Are you attractive? Are you polite? You can kind of read that in how they react. And so everyone is almost like a mirror. And so as we go through our day, we get a sense of who we are often through the reactions that others have. It's called the reflected self-notion. And so for many of us, we just have not had those interactions. And it's almost as though all the mirrors in our house have been removed and we're not seeing a reflection of who we are. And that can leave us feeling emotionally uncomfortable and, and adrift. And, you know, we can almost have this little sense of I'm not, I'm not really sure what I'm about or what my purpose is. And so this is something nobody would naturally connect to less social interaction. Uh, and when they're seeing working at home and seeing the advantages of it, no commute, et cetera, or whatever, they aren't seeing some of these other potential important ways in which our social interactions buffer us and, and, and make us feel good. Uh, and, and so that is my worry a little bit, that if we, that some people will, will rush to the fully home kind of model and, and really that there's more danger to that than they realize. That, that is really fascinating, that information you just told us. And, you know, then I think, okay, so uh, people who are working from home aren't looking and receiving that kind of information, feedback, body language from their coworkers, but 
on the flip side, they're seeing themselves all day long on the on the camera. Um, how how does that affect us individually if we're looking at ourselves all day long like that? Yeah, I mean that that is a strange thing, and I, I, I really hope some psychologists are doing some studies on some of these because the pandemic has been so extreme in terms of the sort of manipulation it's produced. But yeah, you know, you cannot help but kind of see yourself. And I was actually having a, a call this morning on one of these technologies, and it frustrated me because my camera's at the top of the screen, and the individual that I was talking to was positioned low, so that my face was right under the camera, which is the natural place you want to look to kind of imply eye contact, and. So to some extent, they're even making it, you know, us more challenging to get away from us. And yes, that can make us, you know, fixated on how we look, how we act, little weird reactions we give that normally we wouldn't think of. And that's a good thing because those reactions, those nonverbals are supposed to be controlled by a sort of unconscious system that's, that's kind of communicating on a whole other level. And once we start to overanalyze and overcontrol it, then we start to seem stiff and, and odd in our, in our presentation to others. Uh, unnatural would be, would be the right word. So, yeah, there's a potential worry of seeing ourselves that much as well. You're right. We only have a couple of minutes left uh, in terms of uh, final thoughts uh, as we begin this transition. And for a lot of people, they might not have heard yet uh, whether they are physically returning to work in some fashion. Um, your best guidance uh, from a legal point of view, Puneet? Well, if uh, honestly, take this with an open mind. Uh, if your employer wants you to come back to work and uh, you know there's an opportunity for flexibility, uh, be accepting of that, and if you if you don't want to return back to work, be prepared to either uh, perhaps receive a new contract regarding working from home permanently or having that right, or perhaps looking for another job. Uh, I think employers may not go as easy on everyone as, as we uh, as we see or as we think. So uh, it's definitely be prepared uh, because you could be looking for a new job. Well, and the other thing, too, is if you're feeling that isolation at home, you're out of sight and you're out of mind. And, you know, if there are people who are working in person, those relationships might trump uh, the merit uh, of your productivity as a professional. Absolutely. Uh, You know, like you said, out of sight, out of mind, that new promotion coming around the corner while, you know, uh, so-and-so is at the office every day early. Without even being asked, maybe they'll get the new promotion instead of whomever is working at home. Right. Dr. Jordans, your final thoughts on the transition from working at home to working in person. Yeah, thank you. Um, Because there's one really important caveat. So I I implied earlier that for most of us, transitioning will not be such a big deal, and it'll happen pretty quickly. There's one important caveat, though. There are some people for whom this has been an existential threat. You know, maybe they have compromised health or maybe somebody in their life and in their family and household, you know, could have been killed by the virus. And for those people who've lived in real fear, not annoyance, not whatever most of us have felt, but real true fear, that can leave a real psychological scar. That's the kind of thing that can produce PTSD and such. And so employers should be aware that while it's perfectly reasonable to, to generally ask their employers to come back or their employees to come back, there may be some cases where they, they need to be sensitive. They need to understand that this person has been through an extremely traumatic time and, and they should be handled a little differently than the rank and file of us who have just found this annoying. Excellent final point. Thank you both for that discussion. I think it was very helpful to a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Steve Jordans, Professor of Psychology at University of Toronto Scarborough, and Puneet Tiwari, Toronto Employment and Labour Lawyer with Levitt, Sheikh, Achoudhry, and Swan Law. It's Jane for Libby. She's back tomorrow. I will talk to you tomorrow morning on the Morning Zoom. And Bob Comsick is next with the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.